Good afternoon. It is Tuesday, May 19, 2020. And on today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast, we have author Emily St. John Mandel, who's going to be speaking about her latest book called The Glass Hotel. This is her fifth novel, which is coming out this spring. Her previous novels include Station Eleven, which was a finalist for the American National Book Award, the Penn Faulkner Award, and which won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award. And the book that she's going to be speaking about today has been reviewed by the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Guardian, uh, The Globe and Mail, uh, basically all the big publications. She is a a big-time author, and we're very happy that she's uh, on with us today. And here's how she describes her latest novel. It's a really hard book to try to describe. My starting point for the book was that I wanted to write about white-collar crime. I was really interested in the idea of writing about people caught up in a massive Ponzi scheme. The perpetrators, the victims, the bystanders. I also wanted to write a ghost story. We then have two uh, short stories for you by uh, Stéphanie Benato. The first is called The Invisible Boy, and then the second is called The Wood Maiden. There once was a boy who was invisible, like the wind. When he was a tiny baby, his mother could only find him by groping in the direction of his cries. Finally, we have more from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess to end the show. Here is Emily St. John Mandel speaking about her fifth novel, The Glass Hotel. Hello, my name is Emily St. John Mandel, and I'm speaking to you today from New York City, but I'm originally from Canada, from British Columbia. I have a new book that just came out a few weeks ago. It's called The Glass Hotel, published by HarperCollins in Canada. It's a really hard book to try to describe. My starting point for the book was that I wanted to write about white-collar crime. I was really interested in the idea of writing about people caught up in a massive Ponzi scheme, the perpetrators, the victims, the bystanders. I also wanted to write a ghost story. That was something that I'd been thinking about doing for a while. So the result is The Glass Hotel. It's my fifth novel. It came out a few weeks ago. And I thought I'd read to you for a little bit from the book today. The section I'm going to read contains a woman, uh, sorry, concerns a woman named Vincent. And I see her as being very much at the heart of this book. She's someone who grew up in a very working class environment, but she was a bartender for years. And what that means is that she was quite, you know, she becomes quite comfortable dealing with people from a whole range of economic backgrounds. And in the section I'm going to read, she's been kind of swept off her feet. A very wealthy man came into the bar where she worked on Vancouver Island and has swept her off into this very sort of surreal uh, world of money. And I think I'm going to jump right in. Oh, and uh, here's a detail, which is not really a spoiler. I think you get this on the back of the book. Um, the man who she's, uh, who she's with, Jonathan, is a criminal. He's running a Ponzi scheme, but she doesn't know it. Sanity depends on order. Within a month of leaving the Hotel Cayette and arriving in Jonathan Alcatus's absurdly enormous house in the Connecticut suburbs, Vincent had established a routine from which she seldom wavered. She rose at 5 a.m. and spent the day in Manhattan, 
shopping, wandering through art galleries, walking the streets with her video camera, then made her way back to Grand Central Station and a northbound train, in time to be home and dressed in something beautiful by 6 p.m., which was the earliest Jonathan would conceivably arrive home from the office. She spent the evening with Jonathan, but always found a half hour to go swimming at some point before bed. In the kingdom of money, as she thought of it, there were enormous swaths of time to fill, and she had intimations of danger in letting herself drift and allowing a day to pass without a schedule or a plan. People clamor to move into Manhattan, Jonathan said, when she asked why they couldn't just live in his pied-à-terre on Columbus Circle, where they stayed sometimes when they had theater tickets. But I like being a little outside of it all. He'd grown up in the suburbs and had always loved the tranquility and the space. I see your point, Vincent said, but the city drew her in. The city was the antidote to the riotous green of her childhood memories. She wanted concrete and clean lines and sharp angles, sky visible only between towers, hard light. Anyway, you wouldn't be happy living in Manhattan, Jonathan said. Think of how much she'd miss the pool. Would she miss the pool? She reflected on the question as she swam. Her relationship with the pool was adversarial. Vincent swam every night to strengthen her will because she was desperately afraid of drowning. Diving into the pool at night. In summer, Vincent drove through the lights of the house, reflected on the surface. In winter, the pool was heated, so she dove into steam. She stayed underwater for as long as possible, testing her endurance. When she finally surfaced, she liked to pretend that the ring on her finger was real and that everything she saw was hers. The house, the garden, the lawn, the pool in which she treaded water. It was an infinity pool, which created a disorienting impression that the water disappeared into the lawn, or the lawn disappeared into the water. She hated looking at that edge. Her contract with Jonathan, as she understood it, was that she'd be available whenever he wanted her, in and out of the bedroom. She would be elegant and impeccable at all times. You bring such grace to the room, he'd said. And in return for this, she had a credit card whose bills she never saw, a life of beautiful homes and travel. In other words, the opposite of the life she'd lived before. No one actually uses the phrase trophy wife in conversation, but Jonathan was 34 years older than Vincent. She understood what she was. There were adjustments to be made. At first, living in Jonathan Alcatus's house was like those dreams where you find a door in your kitchen that you never noticed before, and then the door leads into a back hallway that opens up into a never-used au pair suite, which opens into an unused nursery, which is down the corridor from the master bedroom suite, which is larger than your entire childhood home. And then later you realize that there's a way of getting from the bedroom to the kitchen without setting foot in either of the two living rooms or the downstairs hall. In her days working in hotels, Vincent had always associated money with privacy. The wealthiest hotel guests have the most space around them, suites instead of rooms, private terraces, access to to executive lounges. But in actuality, the deeper you go into the kingdom of money, the more crowded it gets, people around you in your home all the time, which was why Vincent only swam at night. In the daytime, there was the house manager, Gil, who lived with his wife, Anya, in a cottage by the driveway. Anya, who was the cook, supervised three young women who kept the house clean and did laundry and accepted grocery deliveries and such. 
There was also a chauffeur who had an apartment over the garage and a silent groundskeeper who maintained everything outside of the house. Every time Vincent looked up, someone was nearby, sweeping or dusting or talking on the phone to the plumber or, tw- or trimming a hedge. It was a lot of people to contend with, but at night the staff retreated into their private lives, and Vincent could swim in peace without feeling watched from every window. I'm glad you're enjoying the pool, Gil said. The pool design consultant spent so much time on it, and I swear no one ever used it before you got here. She was in the pool when she first met Jonathan's daughter, Claire. It was a cool evening in April, steam rising from the water. She'd known Claire was coming over that evening, but she hadn't expected to surface and find a woman in a suit staring at her through the steam like a goddamned apparition, standing perfectly still with her hands clasped behind her back. Vincent gasped aloud, which in retrospect wasn't endearing. Claire, who had obviously just come from the office, was a very corporate-looking woman in her late twenties. You must be Vincent. She picked up the folded towel that Vincent had left on a lawn chair and extended it in a get-out-of-the-pool kind of way. So Vincent felt she had no choice but to climb the ladder and accept the towel, which was irritating because she'd wanted to swim for longer. You must be Claire, she said. Claire didn't dignify this with a response. Vincent was wearing a fairly modest one-piece swimsuit, but felt extremely naked as she toweled off. Vincent's an unusual name for a girl, Claire said, with a slight emphasis on girl that struck Vincent as uncalled for. I'm not that young, Vincent wanted to tell her, because at 24 she didn't feel young at all. But Claire was possibly dangerous, and Vincent hoped for peace. So she answered in the mildest tone possible. My parents named me after a poet. Edna St. Vincent Millay. Claire's gaze flickered to the ring on Vincent's finger. Well, she said, we can't choose our parents, I suppose. What kind of work do they do? My parents? Yes. They're dead. Claire's face softened a little. I'm sorry to hear that, she said. They stood staring at one another for a beat or two. Then Vincent reached for the bathrobe that she'd left on a deck chair. And Claire said, sounding more resigned than angry now, Did you know you're five years younger than me? We can't choose our ages either, Vincent said. Ha. Not a laugh, just a spoken word. Ha. Well, we're all adults here. Just so you know, Claire said, I I find this situation absurd. But there's no reason we can't be cordial with one another. She turned away and walked back into the house. Vincent's mother had read a lot of poetry, having formerly been a poet herself. When Edna St. Vincent Millay was 19 years old, in 1912, she began writing a poem called Renaissance that Vincent must have read a thousand times in childhood and adolescence. Millay wrote the poem for a competition. The poem didn't win, but it nonetheless carried an electric charge that transported her from the drudgery of New England poverty to Vassar College, from there into the kind of bohemia that she dreamed of all her life. A different kind of poverty, the Greenwich Village circa 1917 variety. Poverty, but with late-night poetry readings and dashing friends. The point is, she raised herself into a new life by sheer force of will, Vincent's mother had said. And Vincent wondered, even at the time, she would have been about 11, what that statement might suggest about how happy Vincent's mother was about the way her own life had gone. 
this woman who'd imagined writing poetry in the wilderness, but somehow found herself sunk in the mundane difficulties of raising a child and running a household in the wilderness instead. There's the idea of wilderness, and then there's the unglamorous labor of it, the never-ending grind of securing firewood, bringing in groceries over absurd distances, tending the vegetable garden and maintaining the fences that keep the deer from eating all the vegetables, repairing the generator, remembering to get gas for the generator, composting, running out of water in the summertime, never having enough money because job opportunities in the wilderness are limited, managing the seething resentment of your only child who doesn't understand your love for the wilderness and asks every week why you can't just live in a normal place that isn't wilderness, etc. What Vincent's mother probably wouldn't have imagined, a life, an arrangement, in which Vincent wore a wedding ring, but was not actually married. I want you close, Jonathan said at the beginning, but I just don't want to get married again. His wife, Suzanne, had died only three years earlier. They never said her name. But while he didn't want to marry Vincent, he did feel that wedding rings created an impression of stability. In my line of work, he said, managing other people's money, steadiness is everything. If I take you out to dinner with clients, it's better for you to be a beautiful young wife than a beautiful young girlfriend. Does Claire know we're not married? Vincent asked the night Claire appeared by the pool. By the time Vincent had come in and showered, Claire had already left. Vincent found Jonathan alone in the south living room with a glass of red wine and the Financial Times. Only two people in the world know that, he said. You and me. Come here. Vincent came to stand before him in the lamplight. He ran his fingertips down the length of her arm and then turned her around and slowly unzipped her dress. But what kind of man lies to his daughter about being married? There were aspects of the fairy tale that Vincent was careful not to think about too much at the time, and later her memories of those years had an abstracted quality, as if she'd stepped temporarily outside of herself. On another night, they had cocktails at a bar in Midtown with a couple who'd invested millions in Jonathan's fund, Mark and Louise from Colorado. At that point, Vincent had only been in the kingdom of money for three weeks, and the strangeness of her new life was acute. This is Vincent, Jonathan said, his hand on her lower back. It's so lovely to meet you, Vincent said. Mark and Louise were in their 40s or 50s, and after a few more months with Al-Qaeda, she would come to recognize them as typical of a particular Western subspecies of money to people, as wealthy as their counterparts in other regions, but prematurely weathered by their skiing obsession. It's so great to meet you, they said, and Louise caught sight of Vincent and Jonathan's rings in the round of handshakes. Oh my goodness, Jonathan, she said, are congratulations in order? Thank you, he said in such a convincing tone of bashful happiness that for a disorienting moment, Vincent entertained the wild thought that they were somehow actually married. Well, cheers, Mark said and raised his glass. Congratulations to the both of you. Wonderful news, just wonderful. Can I ask, Louise said, big wedding, small? If we'd made any to-do about it at all, Jonathan said, you'd have been the first names on the guest list. Would you believe, Vincent said, that we actually got married at City Hall? Good Lord, Mark said. There's a certain efficiency to elopement, Jonathan said. Weddings are such elaborate affairs. We just didn't want all the hoopla. I had to convince him to take the day off work, Vincent said. He wanted to just go down there on his lunch break. 
they were laughing, and Jonathan put his arm around her. She could tell he appreciated the improvisation. Lying about being married troubled her conscience, but not enough to make her want to flee. I'm paying a price for this life, she told herself, but the price is reasonable. So that was an excerpt from The Glass Hotel. I hope you're all doing well in these very strange times, and I hope you enjoy the book if you have a chance to read it. Take care. There once was a boy who was invisible, like the wind. When he was a tiny baby, his mother could only find him by groping in the direction of his cries. If she wrapped him in a blanket, the blanket disappeared. And if she put clothes on him, the clothes too became invisible. When he turned 12 years old, became a man and was allowed to hold his first spear, the spear disappeared in his hands. And so at a very early age, he became a very great hunter because he could creep up to the wiliest and fiercest animal and sink his spear in its flank before it even knew what struck it, man or thunderbolt. He also became a great warrior because he could walk through the village of the enemy in broad daylight and never be discovered. A couple of years after he was born, his parents had another child, a little girl, and to their great surprise, they discovered that of all the people in the village, she was the only one who could actually see her brother. The two children grew up together, and when their parents died, the invisible boy built a beautiful wigwam beside a lake. And that's where they lived. In that village, there were many young girls who weren't married, and they all wanted to marry the invisible boy. Because the wife of a great hunter would never be hungry, and the wife of a great warrior would never be afraid of the enemy. The problem was the sister. She said nobody could marry her brother unless first she could see him. So, every afternoon... The girls of the village would wait outside the wigwam of the invisible boy, hoping that today, maybe today, when the men returned from the hunt, one of them would actually see him and become his bride. The sister would wait with them. As soon as the men came out of the forest, she would point and say, There's my brother. Can't you see him clear as day? He's walking beside the other men. I just don't understand that nobody can see him. A few of the girls, a very few, would admit that they saw nothing at all. But many of the young girls would say, Oh, yes, I see him, and he's the handsomest boy in all of the village. But what's he wearing? the sister would ask. Because he left so early this morning and the weather has changed. I'm afraid he was cold. What is he wearing? She was so tricky that the girls always fell into her trap. 
Some said he was wearing the same clothing as the other boys of the village, only richer and finer. Others said that he was wearing the furs of strange animals he'd hunted, or nothing at all, or even horns on his head. But whatever they said, the sister knew they were lying and could not really see him, and she would send them away. There was in that village a widower who had three daughters, the youngest of whom was sickly and weak. Her two older sisters treated her very badly. Bring us some water! What's taking Hurry you up? so long? Beating her and calling her names and making her do all the work and sometimes, sometimes even burning her face and hands on purpose because they were very cruel. When her father came home in the evening and inquired about the new wounds on his youngest daughter's face, the two sisters would say, Father, she acts as one who's lost her wits. Yes, father. She crashes into trees and falls into the fire no matter how hard we try to protect her. She is a burden to us, father. Yes, father. She's a burden to us. A burden. And the young girl would cower in the corner and say nothing because she was afraid of her sisters. She came to be called Uchigeasqua, which means she who is covered in scars. Both of her sisters had been to the wigwam of the invisible boy. When they came back, Uchigasqua said, Did you see him? Was he very handsome? Certainly we saw him. We saw him and he was so ugly that we refused to marry him. Yes, he was even uglier than you. Uglier than you. <laughs> uglier than you. <laughs> and then, because they had nothing better to do, they began to cut off all of Uchigasqua's hair and throw it into the fire by handfuls. And pretty soon they were having such a good time at their cruel game that they forgot all about the invisible boy. But not Uchigeasqua. The next morning, when her sisters and her father were gone from the wigwam, she looked about for something to wear because all she owned were rags. When she couldn't find anything, she went out and took a piece of birch bark and she made herself a dress out of it. Then she took her father's old moccasins that were too big and full of holes, and she walked through the village. Look at her! Look at her! When the people saw her, dressed like a crazy woman, they started laughing and pointing, and the children ran after her and threw rocks and taunted her. How much more they would have laughed if they had known where she was going. But you know where she was going. When she got to the wigwam of the invisible boy, the sister came out and said, Ah, Uchigeasqua, you too wish to see my brother. But are you sure you would want him to see you? Dressed as one who has lost her wits, with no hair, your face covered in scars, do you really want him to see you? Uchigeasqua looked down. I will go, if you tell me to, she said. But I would have liked to try just once to see him. The sister looked at her for a long time. Come, she said. She took her by the hand and she brought her into the wigwam. And there she heated some water over the fire. And with a soft cloth, very gently she washed Uchigasqua's face and hands. And under her touch, all of Uchigasqua's scars disappeared, as if by magic, 
leaving her skin smooth. Then she dressed her in a robe of thick white fur and was about to comb her hair when Uchigasqua said, Why do you mock me? You can see there is nothing for you to comb. My sisters have cut off all of my hair. Shh, said the sister, and she began to comb. And under her touch, Uchigasqua's hair grew out thick and black and beautiful all the way to her waist. Come, said the sister. It's time for the men to return from the hunt. And the two young girls left the wigwam. And right away the sister said, There's my brother. Can't you see him clear as day? He's walking by the shores of the lake. I don't understand that nobody can see him. Uchigasqua turned to look. I see him. I really see him, she said. But what's he wearing? Because he left so early this morning and the weather has changed. I'm afraid that he was cold. What is he wearing? Well, he's wearing... He's wearing a tunic that seems to be cut from the rainbow. The sister smiled and said nothing. And pretty soon the invisible boy had reached them. He took Uchigasqua's hand in his and smiled into her eyes. I'm so glad that finally someone has found me, he said. I was getting lonely. From that day on, Uchigasqua lived with the invisible boy and his sister in their wigwam, and they were very happy together. But what about the two sisters? Some people said they were so jealous when they found out what happened to Uchigasqua that they fought with each other until they killed each other. But others say that the sister of the invisible boy turned one of them into a mosquito and the other one into a black fly. And that that is why we have mosquitoes and black flies in our forests today. And you must not think it was out of a desire for revenge. Oh no, because in their new bodies, the two girls continue doing exactly what they liked best, which was tormenting other people. So you see, everybody in this story really did live happily ever after. There once was a little girl named Batushka, who lived with her mother in a tumble-down cottage beside a wood. Her father had died when she was just a baby, and she and her mother were very poor. All they owned were two goats who gave them milk and cheese. By the time Batushka was five years old, she had to help her mother by spinning flax into thread, which they sold at market on Saturdays. Batushka's life was hard and her mother was often worried and harsh with her. There was no time for playing and no toys to play with. But Batushka was a merry little girl, and she found joy in every little thing, despite their great poverty. 
Every morning, Batushka's mother would pack a piece of bread in a basket, along with a spindle and some flax. Then, Batushka would walk the goats along the little path that led to the clearing in the forest. There, the grass was especially sweet and luscious, and Batushka would let the goats graze while she spun the flax into thread, humming and singing as she worked. She would work hard all morning. At noon, when the sun was high overhead, she would eat her bread. Then she would stand up and bow to her goats. Ladies, she would say, now I will dance. <laughs> For there was one thing Batushka loved more than anything, and it was dancing. She would jump and spin around the clearing, laughing out loud at the joy of it. Sometimes she dressed herself in leaves and flowers, pretending she was a lady at a ball, and the goats were her servants. But always, when she was finished playing, she would sit down again to her spinning and work until sunset, and her mother never had cause to complain that the work was not done. One day, just as Batushka was finishing her piece of bread, she heard a voice. Do you like to dance then, child? Looking up, she saw a most beautiful lady standing before her. She had long golden hair to her waist. She was wearing a white dress, fine as a spider web, and she had a garland of flowers on her head. Petushka was frightened. She squeezed her eyes tightly shut, but when she opened them, the lady was still there, smiling so sweetly that Petushka forgot to be scared. Oh, yes, she said. I love to dance more than anything in the world. Then dance with me, little one, said the lady. So Batushka stood up, and all at once the lady clapped. And she heard the most beautiful music coming from the trees. <laughs> the two danced and danced, and never had Batushka felt so light. It seemed she was floating on air, spinning and laughing through the clearing. They danced all afternoon, yet Batushka did not feel tired. All at once, the music stopped, and the lady disappeared as quickly as she had come. Batushka saw the sun was setting. She looked down at the grass where her spinning lay unfinished. Oh, how cross Mother will be, she whispered. She picked up her basket and walked quietly home, herding the goats in front of her. When she got home, she hid her unspun flax under her bed, thinking she would make up tomorrow for what she had not finished today. Her mother was tired and did not ask for the thread, and Batushka went to bed determined to work very hard the next day. The next morning she ran to the wood and worked hard all morning. I will not have lunch today, she thought, as the sun rose high in the sky. But just then, there was the beautiful lady before her again. Will you dance, child? Oh, forgive me, lady, but I must not dance today, for I have to make up for the spinning I didn't do yesterday, or my mother will be cross. Come now, child, the spinning will get done somehow, said the lady, and she smiled and held out her hand. Oh, surely it won't matter if I just dance a bit, thought Batushka. So she stood up, and the lady pulled her into the middle of the clearing and clapped her hands. <laughs> and the music was even sweeter than the day before. Batushka twirled around the clearing, laughing and breathless, until all of a sudden, 
the music stopped, the lady disappeared, and Batushka saw that the sun was setting in the west. Oh, no, she cried as she saw her unfinished spinning. Oh, mother will never forgive me. She won't. She won't. I've been so bad. She gathered up her things and walked sadly home, and even her goats wondered why their mistress did not sing as she usually did. Her mother was in the kitchen, so Batushka hid the unspun flax in the barn with the goats. She offered to help bring in the wood, and her mother was too tired to ask for the thread. The next morning, Batushka rose even earlier than usual. She walked quickly to the wood and spun all morning. But when the sun was high in the sky, there was the lady before her again. Will you dance, child? she asked in her sweet voice. No, lady, I must not dance, cried Batushka. For two days I have not spun, and tomorrow is market day. If I have no thread to sell, we will have nothing to eat. I, I must not dance. Child, I will help you with your spinning if you just dance with me a little, said the lady. And Batushka, Batushka, who so loved to dance well, she felt her feet begin to tap, and she slowly stood up, and before she knew it, she was dancing around and around the clearing, her hair flying out behind her, her eyes shining, laughing and singing as she went. All afternoon she danced and never, never had she felt so light and happy. But all of a sudden, she saw the sun was about to set and she stopped and she cried out, Oh no, I've done it again and we will have nothing to sell at market and we will starve and she started to cry. Give me your basket, child, said the lady. I will give you something that will make up for the unspun thread. And she took Petushka's basket and disappeared into the wood. Soon she was back. Take this, she said, giving Petushka the covered basket. But remember, do not lift the lid until you are home. Do not lift the lid until you are home. And as she spoke... She disappeared. Batushka began walking home, but the basket was light, so light. What could possibly be inside? Batushka thought she should look before she showed it to her mother, so she took a teeny little peek. And you can imagine how she felt when she saw the basket was filled with leaves, old, dry leaves. Oh, she cried in a rage. I am such a fool. And she threw the basket angrily on the ground, spilling half the leaves on the path. She started running home, but then thought her mother would be even more upset if she came home without the basket. So she went back to get it. Whatever is the matter, asked her mother in surprise when Batushka stormed into the house, her hair a mess and tears running down her cheeks. And Batushka told her everything, all about the beautiful lady and the dancing and how she had not done her spinning. But to her surprise, her mother was not angry. Why, child, she said excitedly, that must be a wood maiden you danced with. They come out to dance every day at noon. Lucky you're not a little boy, because they sometimes dance little boys to death. But they have a fondness for girls and often give them rich gifts. Did she not give you anything? Just a basket full of old leaves, said Batushka, and I threw half of them away. 
but her mother said, perhaps there is something hidden underneath the leaves. And she opened the basket and let out a little scream. Ah! For lo and behold, the leaves had all turned to gold. Batushka ran back down the path to get the other leaves she'd thrown away. But there they were, just old dry leaves on the path. Still, there were enough gold leaves that Batushka's mother bought a small farm with two cows and some sheep, and they had plenty of food, and Batushka never had to spin again. Her mother made her a beautiful dress of white cloth, fine as a spiderweb, decorated with green ribbons. And sometimes she let Batushka wear the dress to go back to the clearing, where Batushka would put flowers in her hair and dance all afternoon. Batushka looked and looked for the wood maiden. Sometimes she thought she would trade her pretty dress and the cows too if she could just dance with the wood maiden one more time. But though she lived to be very old, she never did see the wood maiden again. is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Broadway Happy Hour. There are worse things I could do than go with a boy or two Even though the neighborhood thinks I'm trashy and no I suppose it could be true, but there are worse things I could do. I could flirt with all the guys, smile at them and my eyes, press against them. Thank you. 
few weeks ago and I didn't get to it. Younger than springtime are you, softer than starlight are you, warmer than winds of June are the gentle waves you give me, gayer than laughter are you, sweeter than music are you, angel and See
Sequel Center, such a great, great place to work, did a gorgeous production of the show a few years ago. David Terrio, who we know and love, was the musical director. And that show was called Lights, which was a beautiful movie and then a beautiful show afterwards. So why don't we do another from that?
scrounge for three or four bucks while she gets more bucks, the little brat. It ain't fantasy life is driving me nuts to rhyme with peanuts. I love it. She's living fat. Maybe she holds the key, that little lady, to getting more bucks instead of less. And maybe we fix the game with something shady. Where does that put us? Give you one guess. Yes! concludes this segment from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.